Внимание! Говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. Five months after surviving an assassination attempt, Alexei Navalny says he's finally coming home this weekend. And he's doing so at a very perilous moment when Vladimir Putin is taking off the gloves. Navalny's returning home at a time when the Putin regime has filed new trumped-up criminal charges against him. He is returning home at a time when the Kremlin is waging a fresh crackdown on dissent with new restrictions and repressions aimed at street demonstrations, free expression online, and foreign media. But Navalny is also coming home with Putin's popularity at an all-time low and popular discontent at an all-time high. And, oh, by the way, Russia is already gearing up for parliamentary elections this year. The battle lines are being drawn, so hold on to your hats. This is going to be a wild ride. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlanta Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from D.C.'s hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is my old friend and colleague, Maria Snegovaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics and Economics at Virginia Tech, a visiting scholar in the Institute for European, Russian and Eurasian Studies at Georgetown University, and just like me, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Lots of affiliations there, Maria, which is, is you know, kind of a sign of the times. And oh, by the way, it's Maria's birthday. So, you know, happy birthday, Maria. Thanks so much, Brian, and thank you for having me. Thanks, thanks for coming back. And also joining us from Lithuania's awesome capital, Vilnius, a city I dearly miss, is another old friend, Konstantin Egert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. Welcome, Kostya. Good to see you on a screen. I'd love to see you in person over there in the in the lovely Lithuanian capital. Hi, too, and happy birthday to Moscow. Thank you, Ben. Okay, so let's let's get into this. So in announcing his return, Navalny tweeted out the following on January 13th, quote, the question to return or not never stood before me as I didn't leave on my own. I ended up in Germany in an intensive care box. On January 17th, Sunday, I will return home on a Pobieda flight. Now, in return, the reference to Pobieda, of course, is the airline that Navalny will be flying uh, when he returns home on Sunday. But of course, we all know the word Pobieda in Russian also means victory. Kostya, do you see symbolism here? What kind of atmosphere will Alexei Navalny be returning to when he returns to Russia? What kind of danger? What kind of opportunity? Is the Pobieda reference appropriate? Uh, look, I think it is appropriate. I think that Navalny went to Germany, as he rightly said, in an intensive care box, being a well-known opponent of Vladimir Putin. He returns not only as Russia's number one politician and a figure equivalent to Vladimir Putin, but he also returns as, I wouldn't be shy to say, as a European statesman, because his recent comments on 
what happened in the U.S., showed that he's quite keen on being bold and he's not afraid to take on even his own entourage in terms of big ideas like freedom, freedom of speech and things like that. These are traits of a statesman, not even of a politician. And I think that in this respect, Navalny is returning in a new capacity. And uh, the fact that the Kremlin sent out multiple signals trying to dissuade him from returning, threatening new court cases and actually threatening imprisonment is not a measure so much of a danger that Navalny faces, although he does face danger, of course, but also of the fear that the Kremlin is now feeling with regard to Navalny. I want to stick with you for a moment, Kostya, before I return to Maria, because I want to talk a little bit about that danger. The Kremlin crossed a Rubicon by attempting to assassinate Navalny, who has always assumed that a opposition figure of Navalny's stature, yeah, he might get beat up by the police, yeah, he might get arrested, but attempting to kill him, that's crossing a line. This reminds me of the discussion that was going on after the successful assassination of, of all of our friends, uh, Boris Nemtsov. But this seems to be something that was explicitly sanctioned from the Kremlin. You just can't get Novacek at your, at your local pharmacy. So are, do you see a danger here? And also, not only is the Kremlin threatened to open criminal cases, they have opened criminal cases. And the Bureau of Prisons has basically said Navalny could be in prison because he hadn't reported on a certain date. So what kind of danger does Alexei Navalny face returning to Russia? Because the game's changed. The game's changed. And uh, frankly, I think that it's, it's a game of who blinks first now. Navalny definitely wants to force Putin to blink first. And frankly speaking, if he's not arrested on the first or second day, then everyone will kind of presume that actually Navalny won this round. I think that on the other hand, Putin is very cautious. That's why he actually wanted Navalny to stay in Germany and become just one of the multitude of Russian emigres to you know, criticize Putin and to say that what a, what a horrible dictatorship he's running, but they are of no danger. Navalny is different. And I think that Putin is cautious because he already learned a lesson. I would like to mention another name, Brian, here. And this is the name of Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who, although an oligarch, created a huge problem for Putin for 10 years. Putin couldn't talk to any Western leader without this leader mentioning Khodorkovsky. And I think that it was in a different time when there was still this, you know, how you call it, illusion that Russia was going to be like anti-oligarchical feeling. Uh, Khodorkovsky was and still is a billionaire. Of course, it was probably a bit easier for Putin. But with Navalny, who is not an oligarch and resides in a normal sort of two-bedroom flat in Moscow's kind of one of Moscow's what we call Spalny Rayon dormitory district, where you know just normal people live, it's a different thing. The moment you put Navalny behind bars, he will become one of the world's most famous political prisoners and probably Europe's most famous political prisoner. And in this respect, Putin will have a big PR problem on his hand. Of course, I don't want to sound cynical, but you know, as, as a grandson of a gulag survivor, I can say that, of course, things can happen. You know, you can slip suddenly on a ladder and crack your head. That's a possibility, of course, in any Russian prison. But I think this is the kind of thing that I think Putin would like to avoid. And by the way, you rightly said in the introduction, it's probably the last thing you're going to say, you rightly said that their gloves are off. So in this respect, Navalny is playing a risk because if Putin decides that he's not going to blink, can really, really imprison Navalny 
or create huge problems for him and for his family. And I think that Navalny is taking calculated risk because if he stayed, he would have become a has-been. Right. Now he is a political leader, major political leader, the only political leader apart from Putin in his own right in Russia. And I would also add, he's also somewhat of a martyr, and Russians love martyrs. And so that kind of gives him an added cachet. I want to bring Maria into, into the conversation here. I was I was reading uh, different pieces about this, and I came across one by, by my old colleague, Robert Colson at Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, in which he quotes Andrei Kolesnikov of the Carnegie Center in Moscow, of, of telling RFERL that as Russia gears up for the Duma elections this year, which have to take place by September, is my understanding, a, and I'm quoting here from Kolesnikov, a war is getting underway. I'm afraid that in 2021, it will seriously intensify. The situation could become more, much more confrontational. It is a very dangerous moment. Maria, you and I have been talking about this off mic. In fact, I recall a, a very late night conversation on New Year's Eve or New Year's morning when, when we left uh, following uh, the celebrations that we were talking about this. Putin's Kremlin has really taken the gloves off, as Kostya said. It's gotten cruder. It's gotten less elegant in its solutions. This is not the way Kremlin operated, for example, when Vladislav Surkov was running the political operation and everything was kind of subtle and mm-hmm. elegant. Everything's gotten much cruder. Is Kolesnikov being an alarmist in saying that basically a war is getting underway or is Russia heading for yet another decisive round like we've seen at certain flashpoints before, whether it be 1991, 1993, 1999? What do you see coming? How dangerous is this? Uh, yes, Brian, thank you. And uh, by the way, I agree with many things that Konstantin said. And most of all, I admire courage and bravery and commitment that Alexei Navalny yet again uh, demonstrates in his decision to come back to Russia. I'm, however, a little bit more pessimistic about the possible consequences, because I think the real answer is we don't know uh, what's going to happen to Alexis. Uh, And this is very important, I think, to our audiences as well, many of whom have influence on uh, decision makers, to understand that something that may be happening in Russia in the next several days, weeks or months, as tremendous implications for uh, Russia's future, and it should be watched very carefully. So to answer your question, Brian, yes, I think that what happened this uh, last year is very important, fundamental, uh, because the regime has transitioned from somewhat to softer autocracy, that it was the much more harsher autocratic regime, some people call it dictatorship, or some new form that is not totalitarian, but that's much stricter and harsher. Comparative cases from post-Soviet republics in Africa tell us that when regimes uh, like ours eliminate whatever remaining constraints on executive authority they were in the first place, they tend to simultaneously, or that change tends to correlate with their growing repressiveness. And I think that's exactly what Russia has demonstrated as well. In this sense, autocracies also follow their own rules, believe it or not. And they also can get tougher, they're not all born equal. And these differences matter, particularly for people who live in these autocracies in a given moment. Uh, So what we see that already based on another set of repressive laws that uh, Russia's Duma passed in December 2020, the coming back of the mad printer, as, as some observers has, have described it, uh, we see that the regime is not stopping, uh, right? It's, it certainly perceives the society as becoming uh, less complacent with Putin's role. There's certainly a perception that the position grows in support. Alexei Navalny has been made able to 
fantastically made, you can tell, a show of his own, <laughs> of attempt at his own murder by investigating his own uh, murder and uh, publicizing it widely. That certainly influences his recognition. Uh, he becomes much more noticeable, even at the countrywide approval ratings. And the regime has reasons to be scared. But at the same time, we are still in the situation where the regime has uh, over, overpowers the position in terms of resources that it possesses, and the followers, the following on the position is not large enough. It's not a 50-50 split uh, yet. It's going there, but it's not there yet. And this is a situation where repressiveness is coming. I want to I want to stick with that thought, Maria, because you kind of anticipated my next question. Then I want to bring Costi in here because you clearly want to say something. But what we're seeing now is what I hear you saying. Maria is the political science literature suggests that in authority, soft authoritarian regimes, repression goes up as popular support goes down, which is effectively what's happening in Russia. That's undeniable right now. The Putin regime, as I've saw it, it historically has rested mainly less on repression and more on passive acquiescence. Well, that passive acquiescence is gone now. Now, Kolesnikov also told RFERL in the same interview that, like, and I'm quoting him again now, earlier we could speak confidently about the existence of a Putin majority. Now it's very hard to say whether it exists, whether it can be mobilized during the elections. Most likely it is falling apart into several minorities whose members may not be democratically minded, but are happy with the current situation. Maria, you are our public opinion guru in Russia. You've probably forgotten more about Russian public opinion than any of us will ever know. Is Kolesnikov right here? Uh, he is right in that we observe a steady erosion of Putin's support. I would not go as far as to suggest that uh, Putin's support is gone for good altogether, uh, because uh, he still gathers a fairly steady uh, approval at a certain level. For example, uh, about 55% of people uh, in November 2020 said uh, named Putin as a person who um, they would vote for, as opposed to for example, about 2% uh, who named Navalny, right? So that is not yet, as I mentioned before, the situation in which you can talk of um, a serious like, parity between the opposition and uh, Putin. But at the same time, it's very clear that this uh, support for Putin is eroding, not as uh, deeply as we actually expected this summer. In December, uh, the support for Putin has taken a really deep blow, but it recovered, uh, interestingly enough, by December, and uh, it's probably going to respond positively to, again, another populist uh, economic redistribution move uh, that Putin has done, offering uh, Russians uh, about 5,000 rubles, essentially, or depending on the number of kids they have uh, at the end of last year. This is going to probably work uh, nicely for people who are currently hurt uh, by the pandemic and the economic crisis. So that, uh, as I mentioned before, we're not there yet. It would not. It would be wrong to be overly optimistic right now uh, and suggest uh, that all of the society is uh, united around Alexei Navalny. At the same time, we certainly see the erosion of Putin's support ongoing. Uh, the biggest decrease in support happened, just a reminder to our audiences, uh, back in mid-2018 after the retirement age increase. And pandemic certainly didn't help, uh, nor does uh, the overall economic stagnation and uh, declining, actually, economy at this point and lack of prospects. But uh, we also see uh, that the status get more polarized, uh, particularly along the information sources. Uh, people who are on Internet and there's a growing number of Russians who are receiving information from Internet primarily, those uh, predominantly uh, are not in supportive of Putin and much more aware of the developments in the country, much more likely to back their position 
This has been, again, the ongoing development, which has accelerated. Therefore, in response, the Kremlin is actually introducing a number of repressions against the internet freedoms as well. So this is the sort of balance in which the Kremlin uh, becomes increasingly more aware of the problems it faces and scared. And the scared Kremlin in the situation when it has still more resources and power is a dangerous place to be. This is why I think we need to be on alert about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to I want to bring bring Kostya back in here because you, you as you were talking, Maria, I was thinking a lot about this in terms of Navalny's kind of place in the political constellation right now. And if you look back at Russian history, for that matter, or at least from the Soviet period on, but even before the Soviet period, there I can only count one figure who has seized power in Russia from the outside. In other words, even in cases where you had palace coups, it was from the inside. And that's, of course, Vladimir Lenin, right? That is the only case in history I can think of. Historians out there, please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I I, I can't think of one off the top of my head or with a quick Google search. Navalny is trying to replicate, not ideologically, of course, but kind of in terms of seizing power eventually, something that nobody's been able to do since Lenin. And I'm wondering if, I don't know where Navalny's going to land on Sunday, if it's Domodedovo, Sheremetovo, Vnukovo, but whatever airport he lands in, is that, Kostya, the Finland station of our time? <laughs> Let me remind you another thing. Not exactly an outsider, but an outsider of sorts. And also a martyr. That is Boris Yeltsin. I, I knew uh, you were going to say that. He was an insider, though. He was an upcoming. Yes, he was an insider. Chief, but he, on the other hand, he he's managed, the mayor of Moscow. No, 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 no. But he managed to rely on a massive popular support. And in this respect, I think his support was probably much more than Lenin's support in 1917. Lenin yes. was a cool plotter. I think that that is also a worthy comparison to some extent. Can I just interrupt uh, for a moment, Kostya, because I find it hard to characterize Yeltsin as an outsider. I saw what happened in 91 is the elite split, basically. The elite split, part of the nomenclatura stuff went with Yeltsin, and part of it went with those that wanted to preserve the Soviet Union. So that was a, basically an inside, not an inside job in the derogatory sense, but an inside job in that the elite split in one faction of the elite effectively um, I think that Yeltsin, I, I, I agree that Yeltsin's genesis, and we are not dedicating this podcast to Yeltsin. No. We can do another one, by the way. No, we can do another yeah. one someday. And there are <laughs> plenty, plenty of reasons to do it in 2021, because there's all this kind of series of anniversaries happening. But what I want to say is that I think that Yeltsin was the first who stepped out of the elite to subject himself to popular election. And that's his historical achievement, which is frequently overlooked. And he also commanded, as I said, huge popular support. I've been there. I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a foot soldier in that revolution. I, I, was in a, I was one of those foreigners that kind of came to watch the show. Yeah, but uh, well. um, but coming back to Navalny, I think that Navalny is, of course, a new phenomenon because he is very much a self-made politician and uh, someone who manages his own PR brilliantly. I also, I think, to some extent, would like to share uh, a bit of a poll data from the Levada Center, which we consider to be the most reliable, of course, in terms of polling. And this shows that, martyr or not, as you mentioned, Navalny has been viewed just three, four weeks ago as a performer. 30% of the people thought it was just a performance by Navalny, a complete setup, a theater play. 
19% thought it was a provocation by Western security services. Uh-huh. And 7% thought it was an, uh, a power struggle inside the Russian opposition. I mean, Navalny's uh-huh. attempt at assassination. 56% of Russians, to this or that extent, adhere to ideas that are basically quite favorable to the Kremlin. There is a split, though. A huge majority of those who are 18 to 29, they believe it was an assassination. Now, question is, is always a question about, let's face, let's talk about the youth. I mean, let's talk about the youth. That's right. Maria's favorite subject. To what extent the youth is politically active? To what extent it has weight when it comes to elections? These are very important questions. I also think that, of course, in Moscow and St. Petersburg, there will be much more many people that believe that Navalny is an opponent of Putin and the Kremlin tried to assassinate him than there will be in Chelyabinsk or somewhere else. But I think what is important in the case of Navalny is that he is, I don't, I, I, I do not agree with Andrei Kolesnikov, whom you cited. I do not think that Russia is ripe for revolution tomorrow. Uh, I do think that I don't think that's uh, what Andrei said, but <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I think that Putin will be able to manage the so-called elections to the so-called state Duma in September, just because he can prolong the COVID restrictions and manage the whole situation. I also think that Russians are famous for uh, being survivors, and in terms of in, in times of crisis, double crisis, COVID and an economy which is not in great shape, let's face it, they will try to survive. They're not going to go for revolution. But what I would point out as a potential breaking point is the presidential elections of 2024. That is the time when Putin will be around for nearly a quarter of a century. You'll have people who would manage to you know, marry, divorce, and marry again in this time <laughs> of children, and all this under Putin. As it was, you know, there's this old, um, not old, uh, Austrian novel by Robert Musil, uh, Man Without Qualities, which is all about how the Austro-Hungarian Empire existed for 60 years, or nearly 60 years, under one emperor, Franz Josef. So I think that, in a sense, Putin's enemy, Navalny is Putin's biggest problem, but he's not a direct challenger in a sense that he can overturn the situation tomorrow. But Putin's huge enemy, and he can do nothing about this enemy, is time. First of all, Putin's getting old, he can't offer anything new. He can't surprise, essentially. That was his huge quality in the first eight, 10, even 14 years. Secondly, he's been around for nearly, now for 20 years, and now it's going to be 25 years by the time he comes to the presidential elections. Look, you may be St. Nicholas, but people will still be tired of you just because you're around. You, as the <laughs> Russians say, you broadcast from every, every, every iron ball, you know? This is, uh, this is his biggest enemy. He's not changing. He's not introducing any new faces. He's afraid of pronouncing himself on issues of transition. I think that people, things happen in Russia when, when no one expects them to happen. And by the way, since we mentioned Lenin, the February revolution, the Kuldrav revolution in Russia happened at a time when Russia was actually picking up in World War I, in the Great War. And basically, more or less, the country was doing all right uh, domestically. There, there wasn't huge hunger and things like that. There were problems, but I think that this is exactly what should be expected. Something will break at the moment when no one will expect it. I hope Navalny will expect it, but uh, hope he'll be alive and, and well. But I think that 
Putin's ability to manage the situation for now is there, but the support is eroding because there is nothing new, and there is, again, the economy. Uh, Russian household incomes have been consistently falling, could not regain the level of the global crisis of 2008 since then. They managed to recap at a certain point in time. Now they are down again. There is no such country in which eventually that will not have a bearing on politics. Yeah. No, I would agree, Kostya. The parlor game of predicting the end of this regime is is a is a fool's errand, right? The thing about regimes like Putin's is they always look rock solid until the moment they're not. What I will say is, at the moment, my level of alertness about potential upheavals and I'm not predicting the fall of the regime. I'm not going to do that, but that we are moving into another decisive inflection point along the lines of what we saw in '91, '93, '99. In you know, to a degree in 2011 is coming. We're headed for another one of those decisive rounds. Before we move into the second half, because I am mindful of the clock right now, I want to just throw something out there. Uh, absurdity, because uh, this is a discussion about Russian politics and you have to bring absurdity into it. Prosecutors in the Udmurtia region have opened an investigation into a circus performance that featured a monkey wearing a Nazi uniform and a goat with swastikas, this law on Nazi symbols. Um, it's absolutely absurd. It was a circus performance marking the victory and kind of reenacting the, the victory in World War II so that the, the Nazi symbols were not displayed in a, in a laudatory fashion by any stretch of the imagination. If I'm not mistaken, the Russian Orthodox Church was even involved with the performance. What does this kind of absurdity, if anything, tell us? Just very briefly, I wanted to get you each to weigh in because it's it's like what this reminds me of like when they opened the investigation into grammar Nazis. Remember that? Back yeah. in 2014, um, what, what, what does this kind of absurdity tell us? Well, if I may, I think that the fact that the Russian Orthodox Church was involved with a performance with monkeys and goats tells us <laughs> something about the, uh, the state of the church, which is, unfortunately for me, I'm an Orthodox believer, is disoriented and heading for a big disaster after Putin goes. But I think that this absurdity is also quite a vile and dangerous thing. Putin, all this plethora of Putin's laws, restricting foreign agents, discussing World War II, offending believers, you name it. There is a law for any kind of offense you can perform in public. It's a very Stalinesque way, and the fact that it happened in the circus is not, I think, accidental in some way. It is a Stalinist way of managing repression management, if I can call it that. Why? This is the whole idea of Putin's law. Keep repression sudden, selective, and completely sometimes absurd, and people will keep fearing, they will keep self-censoring, they will keep reading the signals. Russia is not the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, it's a union of constant signals that the Kremlin is sending out to society. And these signals are usually menacing. Don't go there. Don't go there. Don't go even there. And if you do, who knows what will happen to you? Well, that's a, that's a, that's an interesting. Maria, did you want to come in really quickly? Uh, just very quickly to, to the list of absurdities. There was another uh, interesting prosecution against a man who referenced certain uh, Mexican town, if I'm not mistaken. That sounded a little bit obscene. This in Russian. 
And he's also prosecuted for that. Uh, but of course, I agree with Kostya, the more repressions, you, the more restrictive laws you introduced, right, you're bound to get insane with that. Uh, one of the recent examples uh, would be if someone who has a foreign passport sends money to United Russia, be it just one ruble, then United Russia would have to point out that he's been backed by some someone who's foreign agent. Even the United Russia, I think this uh, Yekaterina Shulman pointed out at one of her comments. So they're actually making it tougher for themselves, but that doesn't matter, of course, because the laws are selectively applied. And if you're in Kremlin's favor, it's not going to bother you. But at least they add a little bit of fun to this very gloomy reality that we are discussing. <laughs> I see. I see. An, I see an opportunity for mischief here. We get a bunch of Russians who have foreign passports, and each of them send one ruble to United Russia. We create a, uh, a scandal that United Russia is a foreign agent, and then we could like Excellent. we could have a lot of fun with this. Twitter, are you listening? All right. On that note, we'll shift gears in a few moments. We will continue our discussion and take a look at how events next door in Belarus are resonating in Russia, both for the Kremlin and for the opposition. I'd like to remind you, you're listening to the Power Article podcast. My name is. Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from DC's hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is Maria Snegavaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, a visiting scholar in the Institute of European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at George Washington University, and just like me, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Also joining us from Lithuania's absolutely awesome capital city, Vilnius, town I really do miss is Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по никто не слушает. В России сегодня вступают сейчас. в силу поправки в Конституцию. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже о сотруднике безопасности. С Новым годом вас. С Новым веком. So right next door to Russia, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko continues to cling to power, even though he has lost the support of most of society and much of the elite. What he does have is the support of his security services and that of the Kremlin. And those two things, of course, are not unrelated. In late December, a leak to the investigative site The Insider suggested that the Kremlin might be preparing to cut Lukashenko loose. The leaked documents are allegedly from the Kremlin's Department for Interregional and Cultural Relations with Foreign Countries. That office, which is led by hardline SVR General Vladimir Chernov, formulates policy in the former Soviet Union. The documents note a growing and massive deep-rooted rejection of Lukashenko, not only among the Belarusian public, but among the nomenklatura. They outline a policy of forcing Lukashenko into constitutional reforms that would establish a parliamentary republic. Moscow would then seek to establish a pro-Russian political party, along with accompanying information resources, including traditional media, YouTube channels, and a Telegram channel to assure that Moscow's control of the newly empowered parliament. Now, it's pretty unclear, and I wrote about this this week for the Atlantic Council, it's pretty unclear to me if this leak is a real change in policy or whether it's a PSYOP designed to scare Lukashenko. But the Kremlin has very few good options in Belarus. Removing Lukashenko risks setting yet another precedent that a post-Soviet leader can be toppled by a social uprising. But sticking with Lukashenko 
puts Moscow on the side of an increasingly detested dictator against the Belarusian street, much of the society and much of the elite. So this, uh, Maria, how do you how do you see this uh, events in Belarus influencing events in Russia? Uh, just like in Ukraine, what happens in Belarus resonates strongly in Russia, whether to inspire the opposition, frighten the Kremlin. How do you see these events playing out, both in terms of opposition, civil society and the Putin regime? Very strongly. Belarus is certainly an example for both parts of uh, Russian society that we have discussed, for the opposition as uh, for the criminal elites. First of all, at least a third of the Russian population, uh, based on existing polls, watching the developments in Belarus very closely. The sympathies divided again along the essentially uh, pro-Kremlin, anti-Kremlin side, or as it has increasingly become the case in Russian politics, as I mentioned before, whether you're a state TV watcher or you get your news from internet. And if you get your news from internet, you tend to side with the opposition. When if you watch TV channels primarily, then you are likely on Lukashenko's side. And of course, uh, Russian opposition certainly get a lot of kind of energy uh, and a very useful example from the Belarus. As a matter of fact, some of the members of the opposition even uh, traveled to Belarus uh, in this summer, trying to learn a little bit to see what the situation is. But there's also no doubt that the Kremlin follows Koshenko's actions and responses very closely. As Brian, you mentioned in the first part of this podcast, it's very clear that Russia is headed somewhere towards the same destination where Belarus finds itself at this point. And the responses that the Kremlin will introduce if uh, the society finally essentially breaks out in a big uh, protest, for example, are likely to be very similar to the ones uh, Lukashenko has implemented against uh, its own people. One of the most, I would say, the saddest uh, developments that we witnessed so far in Belarus is that in Russia until recently there was this conception that Putin's legitimacy and Putin's hold on power is a matter of numbers of Russians in the streets. If you have like 100,000 of people, he stays. If you have 1 million Russians in the streets, he lives. Well, Belarus shows us that unfortunately it's not the case. You have uh, pretty much uh, 10% of, uh, I don't know, Minsk residents in the streets and yet Lukashenko stays. And most importantly, the elites in Belarus do not show not serious signs of split. This is, of course, quite a negative trend. But at the same time, as you mentioned also, you and Konstantin, this is uh, Putin uh, and Lukashenko both have time working against them. So that certainly leaves us hope. I mean, I've seen reports coming out of Belarus that Lukashenko is losing support among the non-security service part of the nomenclatura at both the national and the regional level. And he's increasingly paranoid about that. Kostya, I remember back when we were both sitting on a panel in Lithuania, back when we Americans were still allowed into Europe and, and vice versa, when we could sit on panels together. I remember you saying shortly after the 2019 Ukrainian elections that the leader of the Russian opposition is now the Ukrainian president. Um, and I, I, I found that a, a very interesting and telling comment. Are we seeing, in, in the sense, the events in Ukraine the, you know, the an incumbent losing an election in a free and fair election and stepping down could influence events in Russia. Are we seeing a similar dynamic with Belarus right now? And what about this paradox for the Kremlin, where sticking with Lukashenko puts them on the side against the Belarusian people, but letting Lukashenko be overthrown gives the precedent for a colored revolution succeeding, which they don't want. So if you could speak to both of those things. 
Uh, well, I think that with regard to Ukraine, that was a bit of a joke, of course, but people were really excited in Russia about this kind of presidential election, which young, inexperienced, but very attractive and, and charismatic comedian uh, suddenly became president. But this moment is past, and uh, alas, the presidency of Zelensky does yeah. manage to as it used to before. With Belarus, it's different. I think that on the one hand, of course, you're right. If Lukashenko falls, then Putin will look silly because if you can't support, if you can't prop his closest ally, probably the only ally he really has, then what's the worth of Putin as such, as a statesman, as, as Russia's leader? But on the other hand, in terms of effect on Russian public opinion, well, Russian society, as you know from polls, is quite exhausted, cynical, fragmented, and it maybe doesn't, even those who, there is a small percentage, some percentage of people that very much support Belarusians, but as such, Russians would be lost to take a cue from Belarusians, whom they, alas, again, most Russians consider them to be like junior brothers, who peasants that have to be taught how to live. We are a great empire. These people, leave. the only thing they know is potatoes, and you know, which is Belarusian national dish. And I think it's all, all these kind of derogatory. Does that does that hold among ordinary Russians? Because I'm beginning to see, especially among the liberal part of society. Maybe I'm just hanging out with really smart Russians, but there is this admiration for first the Ukrainians and then the Belarusians for actually behaving like a, a civil society in a democratic way. Certainly, a minority does it. I didn't. Quite a sizable one. However, a majority is either indifferent, and Russians are always indifferent to quote unquote brotherly peoples. And uh, secondly, I think that they can take a cue from, they could have taken a cue from Belarusians if the situation in Russia was ripe for events like that. It's not, for now at least. And I think to a large extent it now boils down to Putin's prestige. And this is a problem. It's like Putin and Assad, it's the same thing. Putin is now burdened with Syria. And he has to devise an exit strategy, which is which is not going to be ideal, to put it mildly. The same goes for Lukashenko. The only way for Putin to kind of slightly distance himself from that is to ensure that Lukashenko remains, but in a different role, but he's still in command. It will be very difficult. And I think that another problem, and this is very, very traditional, alas, for Putin. Putin has antagonized Belarusia by his support for Lukashenko, he has created not, I, I wouldn't call it Russophobia, but definitely Putin is no there's, longer as popular, especially in yep. Minsk yep. and if you are the big bear. There's, there's better change. And the irony, the irony is that Lukashenko and Putin hate each other. <laughs> this is well known. Yes, they don't like each other. That's true. That's true. I think that the issue here is that they're in this boat together. And Lukashenko, to some extent, knows that Putin has this prestige problem. Mm. And he's going to use it. He use it. He is using it again. He's a and master gamer. He's a I master think gamer. both accounting, and that's the last thing I may say here, both accounting that the protesters will just wear themselves out, the protests will die down, and the society will become, well, as indifferent and sort of slightly amorphous as Russian society is today, or as, as it seems. I think that's different. I think Belarusians Managed to show much more civic solidarity. It's a smaller people. They also, they, yeah, they are much more keen to take 
to look at other countries' examples, like Poland and Lithuania. And they also, and it's interesting, Lukashenko mined his own legitimacy when he introduced about, let's say, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, he introduced this narrative of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, yep. of uh, Belarus being essentially part of Central Europe yep. uh, and not only a vassal of Russia. Now, a lot of young Belarusians believe that they are yep. inheritors of a grand European empire and it's not a Russian empire. Yeah, no, that, that is significant. I've, I've, I've taken note of that as well. That also took hold in Ukraine, which is also significant. We're bumping up against the end, but I wanted to bring Maria in for just one more quickie here. This leak to the insider seems to suggest that Russia is seeking an elegant solution in Belarus. In the beginning of the podcast, we talked about how Putin's solutions have gotten cruder and cruder and a lot less elegant. But the leak um, from General Chernov, or citing General Chernov to the insider, suggests that they are trying to move beyond Lukashenko, trying to find a more subtle and nuanced, sophisticated and elegant way to keep Belarus in its sphere of influence. It's not without risks. Because once you open that can of worms, you have a parliamentary republic. Yeah, Russia can use all sorts of active measures to control that, but it can also go the other way, as Ukraine, Moldova and other societies have shown us. Maria, how do you view this strategy in terms of its risks and benefits to the Kremlin? I think, first of all, yes, the Kremlin should be given credit, too. I think it's much more, has shown itself over the 20 years, much more willing to learn and adjust, not in the direction we would want it to, but nonetheless, they it's do. It's gotten better at being a repressive empire. Uh, precisely. And also better at being, doing bad things to different types of people. Yeah. Like, for example, Novichok, they knew they did develop a new version of poison instead of the older version of Novichok. But in this sense, I they definitely uh, look at uh, Belarus looking for the best scenario. The problem is that, as I see that, they may overst- maybe overestimating the control that they have over Belarus, given that Lukashenko has been uh, very uh, paranoid about the Kremlin leverage in the recent years and has been trying to get rid of the people who yep. have uh, connections to Russia. I'm sure that uh, he has not been able to get rid of all of them. Not but yet. at the same time, still, once again, I wanted to highlight that the um, elites around Lukashenko have demonstrated a de- remarkable uh, degree of coherence, despite these rumors that the Russian splits, uh, in front of this countrywide protest and the universal dislike for Lukashenko. They're still uh, sticking together. I think that would also limit somewhat the Kremlin's leverage. And ultimately, it will all come down to essentially how coherent the elites in Belarus end up being in the long run and how it's also sustainable this protest of the Belarusian uh, people also proves to be so far, I have to say, they have demonstrated a remarkable degree of courage, resilience and commitment and certainly should uh, be given credit for it. Okay, and on that note, we will wrap it up because that's all we have time for today. I would like to remind you that you have been listening to the Powerful Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from D.C.'s hip DuPont Circle neighborhood has been my old friend and colleague, Maria Sanagavaya, postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at George Washington University, and just like me, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and today's birthday person. And also joining us from Lithuania's 
very awesome capital, which I can't stress enough how much I miss and want miss and want to return to and see, has been my old friend Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank, thank you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room and he keeps the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Cecilia Wynn, who handles our all-important post-production duties, which make us all sound a lot better than we do the first time around. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Ritual Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And please leave us a rating there. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at PowerVertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at PowerVertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team.